on healthcare.gov. It's like, note, Medicaid and CHIP programs, names may vary. Learn what they're called in your state. Why can't they just call it everything the exact same thing? I just, I don't understand. This, ugh. Hello, welcome back to the Poor People Podcast. This is a platform for people of color to discuss their socioeconomic backgrounds and to share stories and financial experiences of today. I'm your host, me. And I'm Jackie. And today we are going to talk about healthcare. Yay, healthcare. <laughs> uh, me, do you want to give some disclaimers? Oh, yes. Yeah. So just so you all know, we are not experts social workers or giving legal advice. We're simply here to help provide our own experiences for insight. So please do not take any of this information and run with it and apply it to yourself. We do advise you to seek legal advice or social worker advice that's local to you to help you learn about what your options are and what you can do for you and your family. We'll maybe hopefully be able to provide some helpful information, but definitely we're not experts. Please don't sue us. <laughs> Entertainment purposes only. I'd also like to mention healthcare is a very complex issue. When we were looking into this, we we're like, oh, well, healthcare could be covered in one episode as a subtopic of politics. That clearly is not true. We're going to have to split this into two episodes. So this is going to be part one of our healthcare yeah, episode. Yeah, the space is extremely dense and complicated to navigate. All right, let's dive into it. Me, can you start us off with some health insurance history? Yeah, I could do that. <laughs> so, so this is within the United States. Early in the 19th century, the Depression forced a lot of change within the health system. Many Americans couldn't even afford health care, so the usage of hospitals went down and you know, obviously, this was not great for the hospitals because they weren't generating the money and there were no patients coming in. So they, you know, they needed to have a way to drive more people to get care. In 1929, Baylor University in Dallas, Texas, thought of an idea. They offered a group of local teachers a deal where they would provide 21 days of hospital care per year for just six US dollars as a premium. This was, again, a group policy, and it was the birth of what people would say is our health insurance. Many hospitals in the city eventually would come together and offer plans, and this was eventually what led to the creation of the Blue Cross in 1939. Blue Shield, similarly, was developed by employers in the lumber mining camps in very rural areas of the Pacific Northwest to provide medical care as well. This paid monthly fees to medical service bureaus that consisted of groups of physicians, and this was also founded in 1939. Later on, let's fast forward to 1965, President Lyndon Johnson signed into law the bill that eventually led to Medicare and Medicaid. The U.S. chose to partner with the Blue Cross and Blue Shield companies to administer Medicare. Earlier on within the healthcare system in the United States, there, there wasn't that great of medical care and medicines. Like penicillin was created after World War II. So even if doctors can help diagnose or help figure out what's wrong with you, we might have not had the necessary tools to help take care of you. How, so health insurance then was created by, I guess, what we call the healthcare industry now because they were losing money. Is that what you were saying? Yeah, there there needed to be a wave to help incentivize people to come into the hospitals. Basically, people couldn't afford to have care, so hospitals thought of a way, or I guess the university thought of a way to sort of incentivize, for this example, like teachers to come in and pay within their group of people. And now we have it expanded where it goes into ties into our employment and and everything. I, I feel like that's even more complicated yeah, so history. <laughs> we can talk about um, Medicare and Medicaid and the differences between the two and their similarities that could sort of help drive us in the direction of what we have today and some more recent changes like the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, sure. That sounds interesting because I, when we started talking about this episode, I realized I didn't know the specific differences between Medicare and Medicaid. I've heard of them. I know at some point it 
deals with older Americans, but I didn't know which entailed what things and what they covered and what exactly it was all about. Yeah, uh, I'll cover some very basic information on here. As a reference, these things I looked at on the uh, medicare.gov website, they have excellent resources and information for you to search for help locally. So I do recommend you taking a look if you want to learn more. In general, Medicare is a federal program, meaning it's across the states. And it's eligible for people 65 and over, for younger people with disabilities and renal failure. They may qualify. They just need to apply. So this coverage comes in two parts. There's hospital insurance, which they refer to as Part A, and medical insurance, which is referred to as Part B. Part A, hospital insurance helps pay for inpatient care in a hospital or, or limited time at a skilled nursing facility. It also pays for some health care mm. and some hospice care. And then a medical insurance Part B, you have to pay like monthly premium for, helps pay for services for doctors and other healthcare providers outpatient care. Also like some home health care, durable medical equipment, and some preventative services. There are other parts of Medicare that are run by private insurance companies, but they have to follow very mm. specific rule sets. Some things are Medigap, Medicare Advantage Plan, also previously known as Part C, and Medicare Part D, which is the prescription drug coverage. Again, if you want to find out more information about these particular parts, go to medicare.gov, G-O-V. And here's a, a brief rundown of Medicaid. It's funded by the states with some matching federal grants. So every state has their own implementation of Medicaid, so it's slightly different. The intent for this is to cover poor people, people that are underneath a certain poverty threshold. The reason why it gets some help from the federal level is because the state can't cover everybody. The federal government sets some minimum guidelines for what qualifies a state to get extra funding. And each state is a little different as well. States individually can be more generous. So I think I remember reading that... Medicaid eligibility is related to the federal poverty line. Is that not true? Is it supposed to be related to the state federal or the state poverty line? So in order to qualify, it depends on the size of your family and meeting a percentage below the federal poverty line, below 138th. So the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, also included some subsidies for people who have income that's four times higher than the poverty line as well. These programs differ by state. Please look up the guidelines for your own state or talk to a local social worker or a lawyer to see what applies to you. The thing about Medicaid is that the person holding this plan pays very little or no part of the coverage cost. So this is a form of welfare you can apply for it at your local welfare office. Some examples that Medicaid can cover is the majority cost of staying in a nursing facility, in-home care of qualified long-term illness, uh, some assisted living in some states. I don't think that's applicable in California, though. Yeah, I, th I think it, it might be good to also cover some similarities between Medicaid and Medicare. It's beneficial to people with disabilities. It has prescription drug coverage, and it covers outpatient and inpatient hospital care. That's, that's mostly it. There's not too much overlap there. That's interesting. Something I wanted to mention is if we look at the federal poverty level, it's very low. <laughs> when you look at individuals, the federal poverty level is $12,760. I think I made a calculation the other day of what that means if we <laughs> divide properly and everything. You're essentially making $6 an hour. Um, I believe the federal minimum wage is, I think, seven something, which is crazy to me. Like, I can't imagine being in a place where I can only make somewhere close to $12,000 a year. So it's it's crazy to think about how expensive healthcare is and how much it costs to live 
just anywhere. Like, of course, obviously, when we live in San Francisco and we live in in Portland and all these big metropolitan cities, it's obviously very expensive. But I think in rural areas too, twelve thousand dollars isn't going to get you very far. So these are very necessary programs to have for to take care of mm-hmm. American. Um, me, why don't we talk about since we talked about Medicaid and federal poverty level. Let's talk a little about the Affordable Care Act since you got a little bit into it. I'm sure you guys know the Affordable Care Act has also been labeled Obamacare, but I think it's best to call it by its actual name, the Affordable Care Act. It was something that was passed during the Obama administration in, I believe, 2010. Since then, had a lot of states go through Medicaid expansion. Was it required for all states to expand? In June of 2012, the Supreme Court ruled that Medicaid expansion was optional for states. There are 35 states that have allowed for Medicaid expansion to happen, and there are 16 states that have decided not to expand. So essentially what that means is the states that don't expand essentially cover less people, right? Um, The people that we have heard described as people that fall through the gaps where they're poor, but essentially not poor enough to qualify this for this program. And that was the, the good thing about the Affordable Care Act was it was trying to cover more people within the U.S. and give them the chance to be able to be insured for the first time, as well as a lot of other provisions. So, so what happens if your state hasn't expanded and maybe you also don't qualify for some marketplace savings? I mean, I think essentially that means they're not covered. And I mean, that was the point of the ACA was the hope was to cover more Americans and allow them to have more health insurance. So unfortunately, with people that live within the states that decided not to expand, I I think I said 16, right? Those 16 non-expansion states, people that fall within that range that the ACA would have covered with the 138% below the federal poverty line, which for 2019, that would be about $17,000 a year for for an individual. If you fall between that 12,000 and 17,000, you're not covered. Unfortunately, one of the downsides with the Affordable Care Act is there was that provision added where if you didn't have health insurance, you would be required to pay a penalty, which may you want to talk about penalties and and what what the implications are there. <laughs> It, it, it's sort of different for different years. So in 2017, there was a flat fee. In 2018, it was a percentage of your household income. And in 2019, if you file for taxes in April 2020 and beyond, there is no fee. Yeah. And it sucks to be penalized for not having health insurance, right? You're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. You need health care, but you can't afford it, but you have to pay a fee for not being able to get health care that you actually need. It seems it seems very silly and it seems very counterintuitive with actually receiving what you need in the country. And instead of being able to help you, the government is essentially penalizing you for being yeah, poor. Yeah, <laughs> there is, if you were unemployed and if you didn't pay the fee, like what does that mean? I think this actually depends on your household income and the plan for that year. So, if, so for example, for 2018 plans and earlier, if the insurance was unaffordable to you based on your income, you could qualify for an exemption from the fee. So other exemptions are based on low income too. And if you didn't get exempt from this fee, but you still don't pay it, the IRS would hold back the amount of the fee from any future tax refunds. So there are no levies or criminal penalties for paying the fee. Well, it's good there's no criminal penalties (laughs) because it seems silly. Yeah. Also, a note, some states have their own individual health insurance mandate requiring you to have qualifying health coverage or pay a fee with your state taxes for the 2019 plan year. So you could be charged a fee when you file your 2019 state taxes, but you won't owe a fee for your federal tax return. That's crazy. <laughs> I I don't even know. I feel like that's just 
I mean, unless you're very independently wealthy, it it seems to be penalizing people that are poor. Yeah. So, so do check with your state or your tax preparer to find out if there's a fee for not having health coverage where you. Live. I mean, it's it's unfortunate, right? It. I understand why we needed to have that fee because the idea of the Affordable Care Act is if everyone paid into health insurance, especially healthy individuals, like people our age, if we paid into the system, then it would hopefully balance everything out, right? But because there are people with their own private health insurance and everything, and people deciding that it was more beneficial for them to pay the, the you know, the individual mandate penalty instead of getting health insurance if that was more affordable to them, then, you know, it it causes the system not to work. So with not all the states buying into this, it makes it very difficult for the the whole system to work. And that's one of the downsides to the Affordable Care Act. And it, it sucks because there's so many people that need health insurance in the U.S., but we they can't get it. I feel like I've been very fortunate to have continuous employment that had provided health insurance. So I never had to deal with this, but I've heard from a lot of friends about them having to pay the the penalty for the individual mandate and everything. And <laughs> let's talk about healthcare as, as we were kids, like before the Affordable Care Act happened, there was still healthcare. Do you remember any stories of how healthcare? Yeah. I know exactly what I had growing up. Our family had Medicaid, Medi-Cal. <laughs> Medi-Cal was the Medicaid flavor for California. It has caused my parents both emotional stress and relief because, you know, this medical space, again, is very dense and complicated to navigate. For them, they were already struggling to culturally assimilate. So bringing in like a, this healthcare system and insurance was really confusing to them. One story I remember in particular was uh, me going into uh, get like a a checkup somewhere. I forgot if it was like a dental office or seeing my pediatrician, but I remember going in with my dad one day and he was having an argument with the front desk Mm -hmm. agent, Um, not like making a scene or anything, but he was being sort of, he was frustrated about why like they can't accept the insurance anymore because I had been visiting this office for the last yeah. couple of years like what changed why, why can't I see my doctor anymore and it turned out that that office was no longer accepting uh-huh. Medi-Cal so even when I had an appointment scheduled for this day during this hour he was following all of the rules and randomly out of nowhere like uh, like it felt like a, a carpet was ripped from underneath him. Like he didn't know what to do and he didn't understand what was happening. And I, I didn't have my appointment that day. I believe what ended up happening was he needed to go back to the social worker that basically helped him go through all of this to figure out what was going on and helped find me a new doctor that accepted Medicaid. Yeah, I can <laughs> imagine that being so stressful. Like I, I'll share a story later about just finding out about healthcare stuff when I was adult, but I, I, it, that sucks, right? Like you're there, they didn't tell you anything changed. And then yeah. it's like, surprise, we don't accept your insurance. So we, you have to pay out of pocket or not come here. <laughs> yeah. Luckily we did have these social workers that worked with local Hmong families to help understand what the options are. Like, you know, it's difficult to translate and learn and be educated on the different options and being aware of them before we need them. But yeah. these small little details about, hey, this doctor no longer accepts this insurance can still be very confusing, even when you were taught or have been communicating with your social worker. This is how things work. Yeah, like private practitioners can do whatever they want. Yeah. I have a question for you that yeah. may or may not be comical. I feel like this is a this is a common experience uh, with Asian American kids growing up. Did your parents ever ask you to translate like complicated medical or legal text? <laughs> well, it, it's not just translating at home. It's sometimes having to go into the medical office as a child who's in third grade. <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't know these medical jargons and translating it into like mong. <laughs> uh, <laughs> do I know what menstruation is yet? Mom, when was your last cycle? I don't know what this means. <laughs> I think that's something that I think is really funny because when people ask you, are you fluent in a language? You say yes. Um, but when it comes to medical terminology or legal terminology, obviously that takes a very different education to be able to yeah. say all those things. Yeah. It's funny because yeah, when I was in college, I was part of a student-run clinic called the Vietnamese Cancer Awareness Research and Education Society. Sorry, I had to spell it all out because the, the acronym <laughs> is VNCARE. <laughs> and we had to train all our interns how to speak Vietnamese, but with medical terms. And we had this whole booklet because we had, there was some funny sessions where we would talk about like, wait, how do you explain a prostate exam to a patient? Like, and like the translation directly that we would know using, you know, the, the language that we're familiar with is like, so you stick a finger up the butthole, <laughs> like, oh. like proper terminology for that. But it's it, it was just funny to to see the differences in the language, the, the different vocabulary used in medical terminology and legal terminology versus like everyday conversation that you grow up learning. Yeah, it's true. Some words don't even exist yeah. in <laughs> our different languages too. So how are you supposed to even... I'll use a series of metaphors. <laughs> yeah. But but also there's there's cultural barriers too. At least for the Hmong, you don't heal, you know, the body, you heal the spirit. Mm -hmm. You heal the soul. Like we have this idea of shamans who help protect you from bad spirits. That's how you get healed. But for the Western culture, it's very much about the science of your body, how things work. This bone is connected to this bone and this tissue and this organ will fail if X thing happens. Those cultural differences have become barriers that sort of cause distrust between the the community versus the doctoring system. Yeah. I think it's gotten a lot better now that we have Hmong doctors and better translations. There's a book called The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down. And it's about the story of a Hmong child, her American doctors, and how these two cultures completely clashed because of miscommunication of what it means to heal. And what you've described, it's, it's not like a religious thing. It's just a cultural thing, right? Yeah, it's a cultural thing. I mean, shamanism, do you consider that religious? Could or couldn't be? Some people call it spirituality. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just a different understanding of what is health and how you cure someone. So having a prescription for a particular drug and it, it needing to be taken with a very strict regimen may not make sense to someone who doesn't know what that means. Right. Or like if it was translated incorrectly because there was that language barrier, they're like, what are you supposed to do? You have this little package of, of medicine, but you don't <laughs> quite know what it is and what it does. It, you know, just doesn't culturally match what you think is wrong with your child. Would you say with the prevalence of more Hmong doctors now, they're able to understand the culture aspect and be able to convey what the, I suppose, Western approach to medicine is in a, in a better way? Um, I would think so. I don't have my own personal experience with a, a Hmong doctor or like a Hmong American doctor, but... I would argue that these Hmong American doctors have ways of describing the science in the Hmong language to parents to sort of help them understand what is wrong with this family member, uh, which is, is better than when it was back for this child in this book. We totally skipped you and your your healthcare <laughs> story as a kid. <laughs> Sorry, I went, went going to the Hmong culture. <laughs> Can you, can you tell us about uh, a story or something you remember as a kid? Yeah, I um, I feel like as a child, I was very sheltered when it came to healthcare um, because I was lucky that my mom's health insurance through work was always great. We, I lived in California for my, the entirety of my childhood, and we always had Kaiser insurance, essentially, and... I'm not sure if you're familiar with with the Kaiser Permanente healthcare system. I guess their their whole group is like everything is localized in one space, right? You have your dermatologist there, and your pediatrician there, and your eye doctor there. So everything was there. So it was it was quite a shock when I 
went to college and I was no longer covered with by my mom's insurance because she retired and everything. And I realized things were very different and things cost so much because <laughs> I didn't know what insurance premiums were. Um, <laughs> you know, we had copays of like $10, $15, but it, it wasn't anything extreme. So in terms of like specific healthcare, going to the doctor and everything, it to me just seemed like you go to the doctor when you need an appointment, call in, you schedule an appointment. Things were super easy. But as I've grown older, things are a lot, very complicated (laughs) with healthcare. But something I think was very interesting that actually, I guess, made me realize that I was poor <laughs> as a child. <laughs> One of the few moments where it, it was very obvious to me that I my family wasn't wealthy was when we went to the eye doctor. So I got, you know, my eyes checked and everything. And or with eye care, you get the, the checkup like once every year, right? And then you get a certain allowance to spend on glasses or lenses and frames or you can also spend uh, money on contacts. contacts. Yeah. Yeah. So every two years. Yeah. for le- I think for lenses is every two years. Is that the same yeah. for frames? I don't remember. But anyway, <laughs> the, point, the point is usually I would always go to the section that essentially covered by insurance, right? It was cheap enough to be covered by insurance because they would cover the lenses and then cover it up to a certain amount for, for the, the frame. And I remember distinctly one year, I don't remember how old I was. I was probably like nine or 10 or something. My mom said to me and the optician, she said, we'll get anything that's like the free one. And then the optician was not not great. I think they could have been a little more um, sensitive. <laughs> sensitive with, with their wording. And it, the, the person kind of was like, the free one, what does that mean? And essentially, <laughs> you know, essentially, obviously that means like, whatever is covered by my insurance that doesn't require me to pay extra, right? And I mean, that's a lot of words to say versus like, whichever one is the free one. <laughs> I mean, it I, in my mind, it makes more sense. And, and it sounds, in a way, it almost seems like you're shaming the poor person for asking for something yeah. that's covered. Because like, I'm, I'm sure you know, like when it comes to the English language, it's very, words are very nuanced, right? Like if you say free versus frugal, frugal is the more accepted term where you say free, it sounds terrible and it sounds like- Or or cheap. Yeah. It makes you sound like you're you're cheap or whatever. So it's, it's interesting. Um, but yeah, so I remember that and I felt super embarrassed. And I, I mean, I shouldn't have because it's, I mean- I was paying them insurance money. <laughs> so it's not like yeah. they weren't getting paid. <laughs> but yeah, no, it, it, I remember being after that moment, I I was very careful about my words and and dealing with insurance and knowing what to say to not point out that I was a poor kid. <laughs> you know, that story sort of reminds me of another one that I, I have. It's very similar in got my first pair of eyeglasses when I was a senior in high school. One mostly because I started realizing that I can't exactly read <laughs> the the whiteboard at the back of a classroom anymore. I'm like, oh, huh, things are starting to get fuzzy. But also I was about to go to university. So I'm like, if, if I can't see it from 20 feet back, imagine <laughs> being like 200 feet back. <laughs> so I told my mom like, hey, I know that you take my sister to see an eye doctor. Can I finally go see one too? She's like, yeah, sure. We'll make an appointment for you. I finally went. And I think this firm knows our family already. They brought me to the room where I would get my free pair of glasses, but they didn't phrase it like that. The people at the office that I was in was, was a bit more sensitive. She specifically would point to uh, like a couple of walls and say, hey, you can pick from any one of these here. Not to say like you can't pick any of these other ones, but you'll just have to pay some additional fees. And I'm like, okay, that makes sense. My parents were never with me in, in that room. Like they were waiting in the lobby. So I remember not ever even looking at the other frames because I, I would just get yelled at. Yeah, <laughs> but- I, I totally get that experience too because I, I feel like the previous opticians that I've dealt with were, that's that's what I was used to. And then there was that one optician that was kind of an ass. <laughs> the free ones what does that mean you know what I mean buddy (laughs) (laughs) but I don't know like I thought they were all really ugly and 
I'm like, okay, I'll pick this one. It's the least <laughs> ugly. And it was like a dark brown, very thin wire frame. And <laughs> I'm pretty sure we all had those glasses. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, I'll, I'll pick these. And she's like, okay, you'll get them in like a couple of weeks. And I never wore them in high school. Uh-huh. So I just made sure to sit somewhere where I could see things. And then in uni, I only wore them when I was in a large lecture hall. Mm -hmm. And some people didn't even know I had glasses. Oh, wow. And even till today, people don't know. That, I don't know that you um, need to wear glasses. I'm learning from this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I usually don't. Well, I have nice glasses now. Um, I <laughs> Literally, the only time I wear them is when I go see a movie. I want to make sure that the, I'm paying money to see the cinematic <laughs> Film. I I should see the sharp edges yeah. of people's faces, you know, and 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 the leaves should be crisp. <laughs> the one thing I hate about, or I hated about wearing glasses and going to the movies, is if you watch those 3D movies and you have to put glasses on top of your glasses. Oh gosh, layers of. <laughs> I hated that in lab too, and you know, like when you get your lab goggles, goggles. All, yeah, all foggy, and you have that outline <laughs> in your face. Memories, man. <laughs> The struggles. Yeah. The only other time I would bring my glasses with me is if I'm traveling. Mm -hmm. um, like if I'm paying money to go to like another <laughs> country, I want to see the details of these buildings, the architecture, the art <laughs> and, you know, my surroundings. So, yeah, <laughs> the only times I actually care to spend money on glasses now is if my FSA is going to expire. <laughs> That's how I started buying more fancy pair of glasses, too-ish. But I think, some really quick, something that I thought was very interesting, kid versus adult. When I was a kid, glasses were expensive. As it, it was crazy, right? I remember seeing how much insurance would pay for the glasses to Kaiser. And then I remember it was something like something outrageous, something like 500 something, $500, Even everything's covered. We only have to pay like an extra like 20 bucks or something. But that to me is insane. And I remember the first time, the very first time I knew about cheaper glasses, companies like Warby Parker and like all those online companies th that exist nowadays where you can get glasses for like, under $200. I remember one of my old coworkers, we were talking about glasses in the office because she had these super cute pair of like hipstery looking glasses. And she was like, oh yeah, why would you get glasses from your optometrist? Like they, it costs so much more. Just go to like a Warby Parker or something. And I'm like, Warby Parker, the hell is that? <laughs> and I remember spending money. I was, I was running out of time to spend money from my FSA and I spent the money on a pair of Warby Parker glasses and they're amazing. I just wanted to share that because th that was something that I thought was crazy to me that there were glasses stores that were different from the optometrist. Like I didn't realize there was a separation there until I got older and someone mentioned to me that that was a possibility. But since we talked about FSAs and shall we talk about what they are and br briefly talk about what the difference is between like an FSA versus an HSA? Yeah, FSA is the acronym for the flexible spending account. And it's a special account you put your money into that you can only use for certain out-of-pocket healthcare expenses. The reason why you might want to use this is so you don't have to pay taxes on this money. Pre-tax. Pre-tax, yes. This means that you'll save an amount equal to the taxes that you would have paid for the money you set aside. There's a list of things that are eligible for you to actually use your FSA account on. Um, so not everything is covered. There's a, a website, an FSA store where you can go get like ideas or purchase from directly that are covered by your FSA account. And there's there's some where there's extra requirements as well. I what is that like a like certain prescriptions? I think I forget. But anyways, uh, definitely <laughs> check to see what is eligible for you. FSAs are are generally they're they're things you get from your job, right? Yeah, the, it's a job. tax advantage account, and I I don't think your employer is required to have it available. And there's a maximum amount you can actually put into it. You generally want to sit down and budget accordingly what you need what your family needs so then you know how much you actually need to save in this account so 
just look 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 up and, and plan what what makes sense <laughs> there's also a thing called an hsa which is the is it health spending health account? savings account health savings yeah account. the s always stands for <laughs> one of those things <laughs> uh can, can you tell me what the health savings account is yeah so health savings account is similar to your fsa the flexible spending account but the main difference is your fsa is tied directly to your place of employment whereas your hsa it can follow you around for the rest of your life. The very specific thing with an HSA is you also have to opt into a high deductible health insurance plan. You can't go and use your typical HMO, PPO, whatever plans. You have to specifically get a high deductible plan. Like an FSA, an HSA allows you to – it's a pre-tax account as well. Um, and, and the difference is if I have an HSA at job one, if I decide to leave job one, I can go to job two and that follows around with me um, for the entirety of, of my life essentially. Overall, between the two, I would argue an HSA is, is more advantageous long-term given that you are a healthy person and I'll talk about why. <laughs> Another thing to point out about HSA too is it's it's similar to like a a retirement account because the earnings are sheltered from taxation and you can basically invest with it. So you can think of it almost like a, an extra 401k. Yeah, it's it's great if you're healthy and <laughs> your employer can match up to a certain percentage. Not every employer does this, but this is basically free money. Um, again, picking a health plan that makes sense for you is very important to, to what you end up doing <laughs> and whether or not you have a plan. Yeah, definitely. So I'm going to tell you guys about why it, what Mia said was very important that you have to pick a plan that's best for, for your health needs. It's honestly sometimes kind of a gamble. <laughs> so a couple years ago, I decided to opt into a high deductible insurance plan because I said, well, I'm in my late 20s. It's fine. I'm super healthy. I exercise right and I eat right. I do all the things correctly. So I'm fine. I don't need to go to the doctor. <laughs> oh, I, I opted into this high deductible plan and I put a bunch of my money into the HSA, right? I was like, yeah, great. I'm going to invest. And then I broke my hand in a judo tournament, <laughs> which I would like to point out that I was winning that match. And I'm so mad that I had to quit. <laughs> You're obviously over it. <laughs> Clearly over it. But yeah, so I, I broke my hand and I went to an urgent care center and they x-rayed my hand and they showed a break in one of my metacarpals. And it it, it was terrible. It, but I was like, you know, it's fine. I have health insurance. I'm covered. I have great health insurance. And then it came time to take a look at my hand. I had to go see a specialist. And this was the moment where I decided that I hate health insurance so much in the United States, just because despite the fact that I had a great health insurance plan, I, you know, my employer provided, you know, great coverage and great options and everything. Despite the fact I had health insurance, once I got my surgery, I got I think two to three different bills that I had to pay to different entities to pay for my hand surgery. I had to pay the surgery center, I had to pay the surgeon, I had to pay the anesthetist, and each one like just completely drained my HSA, which I suppose is the gamble you take when you have a high deductible plan. But the thing is like with health insurance, I still had to pay 6000 extra dollars to pay for this surgery, which to me is completely ludicrous, right? Can you imagine if I didn't have health insurance? Like I would probably be on the street. And I feel like that's, that's such an issue with health insurance in in the United States, right? Like I was someone that luckily I got paid enough where it's like I'm able to somewhat afford this, but if I was in a family of four and I had to take care of children and everything, I can't even imagine like that kind of bill setting people back. It's Do you know how much it would have cost if you just didn't have health insurance at all? I think if I looked at the bill and stuff, I I think it was somewhere close to 10,000 because I think insurance covered 
you know, like when they send you those breakdowns yeah. that honestly aren't necessarily super accurate. It's just how much the surgery center and the doctor decided to build mm-hmm. insurance. It's not actually sometimes the cost of the actual services provided. It honestly probably would cost me somewhere up to like $10,000 or more. And that's not something like that's the kind of thing that prevents millennials from purchasing houses. <laughs> it's not the avocado toast, guys. Surprise. <laughs> I remember when you had to deal with um, your health insurance stuff too. Can you go into that? Because like you had you had regular insurance, right? You didn't have the high deductible plan, and you still had to deal yeah. with so many. Fun I fees. I didn't. So I knew for sure, you know, within the last five years that I ha- I for sure am going to the doctor's office at least twice a year. Mm-hmm. One to get my annual or semi-annual MRI depending what year it was and me needing to do a follow-up after each one um there was a time there when Mm. I was seeing three doctors uh spoiler alert this is because I had cancer (laughs) so I had uh, an oncologist I had an ENT uh ear nose and throat doctor and I had a radio oncologist and this was uh you know between treatment after treatment um there's lots of post-treatment appointments there's just i knew for sure i was gonna go visit the doctors a lot actually i think i don't remember a high deductible plan being available uh when i first Mm. got uh diagnosed with my cancer but still like it it didn't make sense for me to have the hdhp if i was gonna be going to the doctor a lot when i knew i was going to the doctor a lot and I had switched multiple jobs at this point already. And whenever that was available, I was like, nope, just choose the alternative. And sometimes that alternative also wasn't that great either, but at least it would be less damage to my finances. So yeah, just going back to how ridiculous things cost. I remember back in 2015, after my rounds of radiation i had a combination of both chemo and radiation but i had 33 rounds of radiation i think oh that sounds awful yeah it's really expensive because you have these radio technicians um and you know facilities that need to be reserved just for you and then you have this program made by physicists just for you because every patient is different uh there was a lot of money involved and there was a a program and prescription just for me so that costed a lot of money. I remember logging into the portal for my health insurance and I totally met like the maximum out of pocket <laughs> for that year, like very early oh on. God. And it was just for the radiation. It was over like $160,000. That's insane. Yeah. But, but luckily, like, because I met that earlier on the um, maximum out of pocket insurance had to pay for the rest, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. not everyone has health insurance that, you know, where they can take advantage of it's not even taking advantage it's more like the system taking advantage of you but you know having <laughs> having a system where you're taken care of yeah radiation's sure. expensive don't get cancer <laughs> Maybe why didn't you just like be born and live normally and not uh, have cancer i don't know why did you spend all that money <laughs> yeah this this particular oh i had nasopharyngeal carcinoma and it's i don't think it, it's not genetic that we know of mm-hmm. it happens disproportionately to southeast asians and Hmong people so i i, I caught like mm-hmm. this cancer that my people get I'm like oh great <laughs> and the the thing that's crazy too is despite having that deductible and going through all those treatments and all that stuff i can't imagine how you would have managed if you weren't employed and had health insurance exactly yeah yeah, and and that's the thing with healthcare in in the U.S. right now, is if you don't have insurance, if you have cancer, you might as well die. Essentially, is is what it feels like. And like insurance being attached to employment is like when you have a job, it's great. But if you're in between jobs or you don't have a job that has insurance or only covers insurance if you work so many hours, it's it's honestly a nightmare. Because yeah. if if you you're one health incident away from losing your house and your your life essentially yeah i'm pretty thankful that my employer at the time was very accepting and took care of me because i had just joined the company like a couple months prior 
they were great. Like if I needed to like stay home or didn't feel well, they didn't hold it against me. So I I don't think everyone is as fortunate. So I'm, I'm very thankful for having a team that was very supportive. That's definitely great that your employer was understanding and supportive and I think that's an issue with how we tie insurance to employment um, in the States too. It's like, if you're lucky, then that's great. But you know, there, there are people that don't want to quit their jobs because they need that insurance, right? They, maybe they have a loved one, like a spouse or her children. <laughs> yeah. If they need that health insurance, it's like, well, I can't quit this, you know, shitty job yeah. um, where my boss is, is awful to me because I need this insurance. So that brings me to today. The pandemic has hit tons of companies really hard. And I know a lot of companies in startup world that have been laying off employees to keep the rest of the organization afloat. And yeah. with that comes comes lots of damages, like families will lose their health insurance, especially if, you know, it's like a, you know, single parent household, or maybe only one is working. Uh, it's, it's, it's really difficult. That means you lose health insurance for the entire family, your dependencies. Yeah. It's really hard and, and sad and it's just difficult for everyone. Yeah. I, I am one of those people that lost health insurance due to COVID-19. <laughs> um, yeah. It's, it's funny. Cause like, so originally let me tell you the story of my current employment situation, guys. <laughs> um, but essentially, I had quit my previous job because I got an offer from a new employer. And we were talking about healthcare and stuff. And from my understanding, if I started that job, I would only have a month where I, I didn't have health insurance. So I was like, oh, I'm healthy. I'm fine. A month is not that big of a deal. Can, can you tell us the timeline here? Yeah. So I left my job March 20th. And I was supposed to start the new job on the 31st mm -hmm. of March. I was, I think, supposed to work a month before the all the insurance, like health insurance, vision, all that stuff kicked in. So, you know, I was like, oh, well, for the month of April, it'll be fine. Like, I just, just need to be extra careful and, like, brush my teeth. <laughs> just take precautions, essentially, yeah. um, since I'm lucky and my, my health is, is pretty good. Um, so that's what I was anticipating. But because of COVID-19, because of the pandemic, my start date just continually got pushed because my company wasn't able to operate during this time. So technically, I'm still employed by them. But of course, because we're not working, I'm not able to have that insurance. And then I can tell you this whole time, I'm sure everyone has this issue now with their own states. But Oregon unemployment is honestly doing an awful job right now with, with unemployment insurance. It's been, I think, Tomorrow will be 10 weeks since I filed for unemployment insurance. I have not received a dime. So even at this point, I, I know there's provisions and, and different things that will allow me to purchase um, health insurance on the, the Oregon marketplace. But the thing is, I, I have no money. I overdrew my account by $4 yesterday trying to pay rent. So <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not in a position to, to spend money on, on in insurance at all. Like it, it, I had a situation where one of my good friends, he, you know, he was trying to be thoughtful and it, he had my best interest in, at, at heart. Um, but it's, it's such a privilege, honestly, to have health insurance in the U.S. and have employment that provides health insurance. Because my, my friend asked me, like, hey, do you, do you have health insurance right now? And I told him. No, I'm in between. I, I'm waiting for my new job to start. So until I start that, no, I don't have health insurance. And he told me, hey, you need to get coverage ASAP. Like, this is unsolicited advice, but I, I recommend that you get coverage ASAP. And during this whole, you know, pandemic, I, I was just so frustrated because, you know, I had gone through that experience before of breaking my hand and I was reading articles about how much it costs for people to essentially get treated if they contracted COVID-19 and happen to need more medical attention than just having to stay at home and work through a fever, right? Um, and there was an article, I think from Time Magazine or something that said someone had to pay a $34,000 bill because she contracted COVID-19. So I was super upset and 
I think more at the situation, but I did blow up my friend and I was like, hey, honestly, at this point, if I caught COVID-19 and I had to be hospitalized, it'd probably be cheaper for me to die than it would be to get treated oh um, and, and try to live through something. And it was it was such an awful feeling and it it really, I think, humbled me because I, I realized I've always been in you know, a position of privilege where I've always had insurance essentially my entire life um, and, and coming to the spot where, you know, I, I a lot of families in, in the U.S. have this issue where they could potentially catch something terrible, get cancer, break a leg and essentially not be able to afford it. And like, what can they do? You know, friend and I am, am are still on good terms. I was I blew up and then you know i was like hey i'm sorry i know it's it's not your fault it's it's the shitty healthcare system of this country <laughs> but yeah it's it's crazy how much healthcare costs in this country and and there are good things i guess to insurance being tied to employment and originally it, it was seen as like a package deal right like it's part of your offer now it's such a crucial part to our lives that if you can't find a job and that's the case so for a lot of people during this pandemic, you're, you're shit out of luck. Yeah. So Jackie, there's this not that great of a program, but something called COBRA that's available for employees that previously had health insurance covered by their employer. Um, did you take a look at what was available for you there? I did. And it just wasn't something that could ever fit into my budget right now. <laughs> it was over $600 for me to keep just my medical insurance. And I don't know about you, but $600 isn't something you can afford during a pandemic when you're not getting paid by your state's unemployment system because they're overworked and overloaded. And it's it's either rent and food or insurance. And obviously, I'm going to go with rent and food. Um, and that's actually something I <laughs> I mentioned when I blew up at that friend, I was like, dude, I have way more things to worry about right now than health insurance. <laughs> like there are so many other things that are top of mind instead of dealing with essentially paying into a system that I may or may not need and I'm paying a lot of money into mm -hmm. it and I may or may not ever see that money go towards anything. Pretty shitty. <laughs> I think we're going to end – our current conversation on healthcare and health insurance and experiences. We would like to continue this conversation for our next episode and perhaps compare and contrast healthcare in the United States with some other countries, seeing like where the struggles are, what the trade-offs are, how people react to their own healthcare systems within their own countries. We'll, we'll try to find examples and share that with everyone. It should be it should be interesting because I I've always heard I've heard mixed things about Canada. Like everyone always talks about like Canada has great healthcare, but then there's also the opponents that go, no, socialized medicine is terrible. So I'm I'm curious to learn more about both both sides, <laughs> as you would say, and citizens <laughs> on both sides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. All right. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, we'll see you guys next episode. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.